Good morning, guys. You doing all right? All right. What an incredible, incredible day yesterday. I woke up this morning thinking, Lord, this is our life. This is what we get to do today. Really exciting uh, things. Think about the kindness of the Lord to allow us to enjoy one another's company, to enjoy his word, to enjoy beautiful days, fun things we get to do. And that's your day to day. We're looking forward to that. As we turn our attention to the Word, open your Bible to James chapter 1. James chapter 1. The great Puritan Thomas Brooks said this, We must love truth, both shining and scorching. We must love truth, both shining and scorching. This morning we're going to get truth that scorches just a little bit. Look at James chapter 1, read the passage, we'll go down through verse 8. This is what the word of the Lord says. James, the servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes dispersed abroad greeting. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like the wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all of his ways. Let's pray. Our Father, this morning as we We open our eyes, we open our hearts, we open our ears to hear your word. Father, I pray that you would grant us wisdom. Help us to see, Lord, the way that that you see life. I I pray that the word would be life-giving and life-altering this morning as we encounter it. I pray, Father, that the word this morning would help us to understand and give meaning to our life in the way that you intend for us to live life. And so, Father, we pray that it would be a fountain unto us, a wellspring of joy and life as we walk through the difficulties of trials that we would experience, knowing that we can cling to you through all things in Christ's name. Amen. How many of you have ever been to a foreign country in this room? Raise your hand. How many? All right, that's a good percentage. Uh, I've probably been to Honduras 30 or 40 times. And one of the most shocking things, if you were to go with me to, to Honduras, is you walk into a typical restaurant that you might see in the United States, somewhere like McDonald's. Is that your favorite? Maybe not. Wendy's? I, I don't know. Like some terrible for you food, but it looks familiar. So you're like, this is cool. We're going to walk in and we're going to have a meal. I have no idea what that was. Um, and you might hear that noise at Wendy's or something like that. And so here we go. We walk in and you look on the board and you're like, dude, um, or, or McDonald's, and you're like, a Happy Meal is $100, $100. Like you see 120 130 a Big Mac's like 300 right? That's the number that you see. What you forget is that the way in which they account for things in Honduras is quite different than we would account for things here in the United States. Why is that? Well, because the exchange rate is 1 to 24. So you walk in and you're like, for a Happy Meal. I don't think I can afford to even live here. It matters the way you account for things. If you were to go to England and you were to want to buy some tea because it's proper to want to buy tea 
in England, and let's say you put your tea on the counter and they ask for 20, and you give them a $20 bill, and they're going to tell you in a very posh British way that you can't have the tea because the exchange rate is, is quite different. It's actually more British pounds than, than you would account for dollars. I think sometimes that when we experience life, we have a different way of accounting things than what God does. We have a different way of measuring meaning and purpose and value for the experiences that we have. The, the backdrop by which we see life often is quite different than the way God sees our life unfolding. And I think one of the things that James, particularly in this first section of the first chapter, he helps us to see now according to God's ways. He helps us to account properly for how, what is happening in our life and what we're experiencing in any given moment, particularly those times of trial where we ask the most questions, God, why is this happening? And James helps us to, to understand what's, what's going on. He begins in a place introducing himself. It's interesting he doesn't announce himself in an arrogant way that I'm the brother of the Lord Jesus, right? He says a bondservant of Christ. And then he, then he goes on to describe what's happening, sort of the context of the people that he's writing to. He's writing to people who have been dispersed. Now, if you know your New Testament, you know what's happened. What's happened is now these people who are believers in the Lord Jesus have been dispersed because of persecution. And in fact, what they're experiencing right now is deep persecution. You make a confession of faith. You stand to be baptized to make a public profession of your faith. And now you're marked as one of those. One of those people who at any given moment you could be persecuted, taken to the Colosseum, fighting animals and die for your faith. We're talking about that level of trial and persecution. And this is the truth that James writes to those people. And what he's saying is it doesn't matter what your life experience looks like. This truth is sturdy and stable enough to help you to walk steadfast with Christ through trial. First thing James does in verse 2 is a very different layout than what we see in most of the New Testament. James takes a very different approach than what we see even with the Apostle Paul. Paul's typical writing is he would start with what we would call an indicative. An indicative is just simply telling you some truth about yourself if you're a believer in Christ that's unalterable. Right? This is who you are in Christ. Ephesians chapter 1, that's what he does. He repeats it several times. You are in Christ, in the beloved. You're in him. He's indicating who you are as a believer in Christ. And then he flows from that and he starts giving commands. Do this because these things are true about you. James starts in a very different place. Maybe because of the urgency of what's happening. But James begins with a command. James begins with a command, and here's the command. Consider it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. What's he saying? He's telling us to consider. The first point that I want you to, to think about is learn to consider. Learn to take an account for the things that happen and unfold in your life. This is, this is not a suggestion from the Lord. As life is happening, that you just do it mindlessly. I think one of the greatest temptations of being a teenager, and we've all been there at some point or another, 
One of the greatest temptations is you live life willy-nilly, not thinking about what happens in a given day. The scriptures command us to consider what we go through in a given day and how to account for the different things that we experience in a given day. Now, he tells us to count it all joy. I would venture to say that when you walk through trial, the first thing on your mind is not thoughts of joy, right? This is awesome. Hit me again. I think, I think that feels wonderful, right? I mean, that's not normal to our human existence. The reason he tells us and commands us to consider this walking through trial joy is because it's not natural for us to experience joy when we're walking through trial. But he's telling us to account for something quite differently than what we would do in our natural responses to life. And so he commands us to consider it all joy, my brothers. Why? One of the things he's going to unfold as we work through this, these various different types of trials and being able to consider it joy, is he's going to help us to understand that you are not at the mercy of your trial. You are not at the mercy of your trial. You're at the mercy of God. All over the place in the New Testament, what we see is we have to learn to think on things above, not on things on the earth. We have to learn to account for things the way God accounts for things, not the way we do in the natural sphere. And oftentimes, particularly in your generation, you have a tendency to think that as you experience life, that gives you your identity. You believe that you're at the mercy of your friends. You're at the mercy of your experiences. You're at the mercy of what unfolds in a given day and that your identity is now woven into those things. This command that James is giving is stripping you away from that bondage to say you are not at the mercy of your experiences or your trials. You are at the mercy of Christ. We are at the mercy of Christ. And this is what he says, consider it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. What he's trying to help us to see is that there are different types of trials. Trials are something that is inevitable. Notice here, he doesn't say if they come or you should be prepared because they might come. This is a definitive statement saying when this happens, So this is a not if this happens, but when it happens. So all of us in this room need to be prepared to consider something joy that naturally doesn't give us a response of joy. We need to be ready because trial will come at various times and in various ways. As I mentioned yesterday, the Bible is very clear. I'm going to read some passages to help you to see the clarity with which the Bible describes that, that what you experience or see on TikTok and Instagram is not normal. The lifestyle that people present themselves with in a format like that is not real life. What the Bible presents gives you a picture of what real life looks like. And it's full of difficulty. It's full of trial. The Bible tells this story, this narrative over and over again, starting way back in Genesis 3, because of the curse of sin, we experience death and destruction and difficulty, and trial. A broken world is normal to the human experience. Listen to the way Jesus describes this in Matthew 5, 12. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. 
For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Listen to John 16, Jesus, again, I've said these things to you, that in me you may have peace, but in the world you will have tribulation. Take heart. I've overcome the world. Why does Jesus tell you to take heart? Because you're going to have lots of opportunity to take heart. There are going to be lots of trials, lots of problems, lots of difficulty. You have to learn to take heart in Christ. Peter reiterates the same truth, 1 Peter 1, 6 through 7. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. It is normal that we would experience difficulty and trial. Don't think that that's unplanned in your life. It's normal that we would experience difficulty in trial. And these trials, they're various. They can happen in different ways. Sometimes they're sudden. Sometimes they're, they're groaning in your life. They're building to some crescendo, but sometimes they come suddenly. They, they happen in various shapes and sizes, the different types of trials that you would have. Listen to Dr. MacArthur as he describes this aspect of trials. Whether trials begin as financial problems or physical illness, as a disappointment, criticism, fear, or persecution. It is our attitude about it, uh, about it and responses to it that reflects our spiritual condition. And this is the story that you're going to see unfold in James chapter 1. The first thing I want you to think about is to consider it all joy. Now, as we work through this passage, what I want you to see is why is it that we are to consider trial joy? And that seems so paradoxical to what we, would, what we would want to live life like in our natural man. He says to count it all joy or to consider, take this thing into account. Why? For what the trial produces, not the trial itself. It's not like, yes, today I'm walking through a trial. This is great. No, the picture is, I know what God is doing and what he's producing in me, and that brings me joy. Because what God is doing through a trial is he's killing and crushing the things in you that are killing you. God uses trial to reveal the things that we hope in most, which are fleeting, that pass away like the flowers. He's using trial to crush those things in you so that you wouldn't hope in those things and be devastated at the end. God in his kindness is willing to use trial and difficulty in your life to kill those things that are killing you. And so because of that, we see what he's producing. He's producing faith. He produces deep roots in steadfastness and stability to walk through the difficulty of trial and not waver, be tossed to and fro, to be settled with resolve in your heart that God is doing that sort of thing. Why? So that you can lean into what true joy really is, that you have the treasure of Christ and that it is promised that as this life is fleeting and passing, that we can long for something that's better to come where sin and all of its consequences will pass away once and for all and forever. I want you to follow the rest of the passage, verse 3, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. This is exactly what God wants to do with you. This is the same 
goal that God has for every single person who believes is he desires to make you complete in Christ. This is the way the Bible says it in Romans 8, 29, that he has predestined you to be conformed to the image of Christ. Now, notice I said Romans 8, 29. Do you know the passage that goes before that? Romans 8, 28. Was that a part of your memory verses growing up? Do you guys know that verse? Romans 8, 28. Can you say it? This is the inter interactive portion of our program here. Romans 8, 28, anybody? We know that. Okay, a little louder, come on. That was super lame. Unbelievable. You're... The, unbelievably lame. Okay, we've got to wake up. Romans 8, 28. Come on, say it. Let's go. We know that works. We know God does something. That's, that's what we know. Uh, he works all things together for good. Those who love him are called according to his purpose. And oftentimes we, <clears throat> we account good for what we think will benefit us. Okay, Lord, I'm willing to walk through this because I know you're going to pay me back sevenfold. And that's sort of a, a deal. You become a deal maker with God. And you say, yes, Lord, I'm willing to walk through this difficulty so I can get what's good to me. Notice in verse 29, God actually defines the good. What does he say is good? That you be conformed to the image of Christ and anything that the Lord uses to kill the flesh in you, to kill your security in things of the earth, to crush the desires that move you away from that which is stable, the anchor of your soul, that the Lord is willing to use those things, and he calls that good. To do what? To make you perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Notice that you were made from the beginning of time. The Bible describes that we as human beings were made in the image of God. Sin separates and mars that image of God in us where we don't reflect the character and the nature of God as he redeems us, as he makes us alive. What he's doing by sanctification is he's building back in us that character, that reflection of the nature of God. He's making us perfect and complete so that we lack nothing in relation to him. He's molding us. He's conforming us to his image. And the beauty of what God is doing is he uses trial to accomplish that. That through faith we would build in steadfastness, trusting in the sturdy hope of Christ, the promises of God. How do we know God is doing that? Listen to what Paul says in Colossians 1, 20, 21 and 22. And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. He has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable, steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard. One of the things that's very interesting to me about this particular section, verse 4, and let steadfast steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. It's interesting to me, we think things that are perfect and complete are full of something. James radically alters the way we account for that here. What he's saying is that God, through trial, is willing to remove things from you so that now you can be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. He's taking away the things that keep you from being filled with the fullness of the Lord. 
And so this is interesting that James is describing that trials position us in a place so that we lack nothing, so that we are conformed to the image of Christ. And we can consider trials joy because of what it produces, not because of the trial itself. And there's a particular method here. There's a method by which God uses, the Bible describes it here in this section, the method is it knowing that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness? How is your faith tested? Your faith is tested, the Bible describes, by trial. Why? As trial happens, what do we begin to see? We begin to see what's genuinely in your heart. The trial begins to squeeze your life to such a degree that we, we see what starts to come out of your life. When we see bitterness, that's a fruit of the flesh. When we see anger, that's a fruit of the flesh. When we see deceit, that's a fruit of the flesh. When we see brokenness and we crumble under trial, that's a, a fruit of the flesh. It demonstrates instability. But God's method is to walk us through trial, to reveal in us what, what is genuinely in us, whether we have faith walking with the Lord or not. And in this method, we must, we must trust it. Because God is bringing about a perfectness, a completeness in us. We must trust his wisdom. Now, sometimes when we get, when we're walking through trial, it's difficult. We don't know what to do. We seem like our hearts could be settled. Lord, if I just knew why this was happening, if you just let me know why. But God never promises to explain why a given thing is happening. And I would argue that that is never a requirement for us to have joy. For us to be able to see the outcome or, or know what's going to happen. Or to know why something is happening. Lord, why is this happening? That's not a requirement for us to experience joy in life. Our faith in God's wisdom is necessary for our joy through trials. Listen to Spurgeon, one of my favorite dead preachers that I read quite often. Strong, sound faith is not based on feelings, but on knowledge and understanding of the promises of God's truth. Let me read that again. Because we live in a generation that's, that identifies ourselves with the way that we feel. This is what Spurgeon says. Strong, sound faith is not based on feelings, but on knowledge and understanding of the promises of God's truth. Now we get to this transition. What, what James has done up to this point is he's told us to consider. He's taught us how to consider. He's teaching us the method by which God uses to grow us into perfectness, to completeness, to change us into the image of Christ, to do that which is good for us, to build in us a sturdy faith, a steadfastness in hope, to, to build our roots deeper. In verse 5, he makes a transition. And to me, this is sort of a really odd way for James to explain what comes next or how we should evaluate what's going on in our life at that moment. And it's interesting that James assumes that we're not going to be perfect at this. Because the very next thing he says is he teaches us how to account properly. Because immediately, if you fail in trial, you're thinking, what could I have done better? What should I have done here? What, what might I have done there? so that I didn't have to walk through this trial or walk through this difficulty. And you start evaluating your performance and the things that you do. That's, that's not the way that James accounts for this here. What he teaches us to do is consider what's happening in our life. 
What is the trial revealing in us? What the trial reveals in us is wisdom, that which we hope in, that which we trust in, the backdrop of our life, the way that we account for our life, what we think gives our life meaning and purpose and value. And a trial will reveal that quicker than anything else known to man. And as a trial is impacting you and squeezing you and you start to see Maybe it's goodness. Maybe you see the wisdom of God, the kindness of the Lord come out in you. But I would argue that because of who we are and our need for sanctification, most of the time what we see come out of us is not the wisdom of God. What we see come out of us is that we are totally comfortable in the land of the wisdom of man. And we live primarily for ourselves. And what God does in trial is he helps to reveal that that's the wisdom you're leaning into. And the whole story of the Bible is when you lean into the wisdom of the earth, when you lean into the wisdom of man, it leads to death and destruction. And God in his kindness is allowing trial to help you to see the frailty of that wisdom. And so James asked the question, if any of you lacks wisdom. What, well, hold up, James. I'm walking through trial. Why are we talking about wisdom and knowledge and understanding? Because what James knows is it's not the external things that happen to you that define you. It's the way that you see and understand life from the inside that defines the type of person that you genuinely are. And so the question is something like this. You don't have to remove yourself out of some circumstance to re-identify who you are, because those circumstances don't define you. It's who you are in the hidden person of the heart. And what trials do is trials reveal what is going on inside. None of you in this room can open your heart up, look inside of yourself, and see what type of person that you are. Jeremiah 17, 9 says, the heart is deceitful and wicked, who can know it? But you are who you are on the inside. Proverbs describes it like this. The way a man thinks, so is he. The way a man thinks in his heart, so is he. And what trials do is trials begin to reveal by your actions, by your words, by your feelings, the type of person that you really are on the inside. And this is why James asked this really odd question here. If any of you lacks wisdom. Now, here's the call is when you walk through trial, most of the time you're not going to do very well because we are earthly people. We, we still struggle, as Paul says in Romans 7, in this body of death. He even describes himself as, in me and my flesh there is no good thing. So when we walk through trial and difficulty, we're going to see some of the wisdom of the earth flow out of us in bitterness and anger and malice and wrath frustration, broken relationships. We're going to see that flow out, not desiring to forgive and so on. And what we see here is we have to cling to the wisdom of God. If any of you lacks wisdom, what is your trial revealing? It reveals that you lack the wisdom of God. It reveals that, that you're not walking in the wisdom of God. Now, when that happens, you can run away from God being ashamed or you can run to God. And what is what is the call here? He, he does a couple of things as he's describing this. The primary point I want you to get here is the place that you go when trial happens. 
What James is trying to encourage you to do is to ask of God. Don't ask of the rest of the world. Don't start primarily with your friends. Don't start primarily with your social media contacts. Don't start primarily with media in general. Let him ask of God. This demonstrates a point of weakness, a point of frailty. And the whole call, when you're in a state like that, Matthew chapter 11, Jesus says, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest. So often we act like Adam and Eve in Genesis 3 when, we do, when we've done something wrong or when trial reveals what's genuinely in our heart and we have a tendency to want to run and hide, to cover ourselves with something else that's really not a covering at all before the Lord. But he tells us here, ask of God. When trial reveals in you that you don't hope in the Lord and that there's still lots of earthly, fleshly things that you love inside of you, don't run from God. Ask of God. Run to him. If any of you lack, lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting. And this describes, this is the difference, okay? The one who asks of God in humility for God to purify, for God's wisdom to walk faithful, through trials, there's a distinction here. But let him, let him ask in faith with, with no doubting. For the one who doubts, and, and this is what you might experience in the, in the symptoms of your trial. For the one who doubts, he's, he's like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. Do you know how that feels? Do you know what that feels? That feels like in the evenings when something rough has happened throughout the day and you're struggling to fall asleep at night. Because... Because you're wrestling, you're replaying that, that moment over and over and over again. Now you think because of one event that happened in your life, your life is ruined and you're, you're waiting up all night thinking over and over, replaying that moment in your mind again and again. That's the description. You're being driven and tossed to and fro, wishing that this had happened another way. The Lord is using that to bring something out of you. He's showing you that the thing that you're leaning into is not worthy of your weight. It's not worthy of your hope. It's not worthy of your trust. And that's the, that's the description. If you've ever read Pilgrim's Progress, <clears throat> this, this description is described by John Bunyan, by, by one of the figures in the Pilgrim's Progress. He describes the double-minded man, which we'll see in a second, as Mr. Facing Both Ways. It, is he wants it both ways. Sometimes in your life, that's what you want. You want it both ways. This is what the Bible says, verse 7. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. Verse 8, he is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. You see, what you want is, you might even want bits and pieces of God. You want parts of God. This, this word in the Greek New Testament in verse 8, double-minded, daisuke, it means double-souled man. A man who is not given in fullness to the things of God. He wants parts of God. He wants the pieces of God that he thinks can benefit himself. But he still has a posture in the direction of the world. And he wants what the world can give him. And so he becomes divided in his soul. Torn between two ways of accounting life and giving meaning and experience and purpose to life. And he's divided. You find yourself often in a place like that. 
Mr. Facing Both Ways, a double-souled man divided between your allegiances, the things of the world or the things of God. And trial is not condemning you. The trial is helping to reveal where your allegiances lie and pay attention to that. For what purpose? Because God is using that to call you to himself. Hear the gentle call of the Lord when you walk through trial and you find yourself between allegiances. Cut the bondage of the world and run to Christ. This is the person that wants to use God to please yourself. You act as though God is like a genie in the bottle and he can do whatever you want to just help build you. Yet that's not God's plan. God uses trial to strip you from the things that you love in order to give you the things that are necessary to make you sturdy. And he goes on to describe that this double-minded man is unstable. That word in the Greek means disordered. There are two times that this particular word appears in the scriptures. It's here in James 1.8 and also in James 3.16. This is what the word says there, verse 15. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but it is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. Verse 16, for where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. When we see selfish ambition, what we see is disorder. What that simply means is this is not the way you were intended to live. You weren't intended to be made to operate according to the systems of the world. You were intended to live and operate according to the wisdom of God. And so you feel divided. You feel disordered. You feel like things are not sorted out appropriately. So what's the effect? The effect of our trials is that they reveal wisdom upon which we lean. What's being exposed is what we already know, that we lack wisdom. Trials expose our dependence upon our wisdom. What's in question at the moment is not that we're dependent upon wisdom, but which wisdom is our leaning post. Trials give us a gaze into our inner man in a way that transcends our typical human reflection. And the exposure of our inner man is both uncomfortable and welcomed. Let me finish by saying this. When trials happen, there's a sense at which we feel very uncomfortable because of what's being revealed, because it's difficult when the flesh is exposed. When the flesh is exposed, we feel embarrassed. We feel unsatisfied. We start to turn inward. We, we retract when our frailties and our weaknesses are exposed. But can I remind you that in that uncomfortable place, that it's in your frailty and in your weakness that the Bible says Christ can be made strong. Don't run from your frailty. Don't run from your weakness because that is the truth that the Bible says about you, that on your own you can do nothing. And so God is using trial to expose the frailty in you that the world is trying to hide about you. Allow trial to expose in an uncomfortable way what you've been clinging to is your weakness, thinking that it's strength and it's not. But run to the wisdom and the strength that's found in Christ. That's the beauty of what trials is intended to do. Yes, I know it's uncomfortable, but don't run in embarrassment or shy away from your frailty and weakness. Glory in those things so that Christ can be made strong in you. 
And then I would say we should welcome trial. Why? Because it teaches us where our hope truly lies, is that the Lord is willing to crush those things in us which are killing us. And as we put those things to death, as the Bible demands of us, we start to walk according to the wisdom of God. And the Bible describes that the wisdom of God doesn't lead to death and destruction. It leads to life and restoration. The question then becomes, how do you account for your experiences in life? Do you account for them the same way that the world does? Or do you consider it joy because of what God is doing in you to destroy the things that are killing you in order that you grow steadfast and strong with deep roots of faith in the Lord Jesus that brings life and restoration. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful. Your word is amazing and it gives explanation to all the things that we, we are confused about. Father, it gives explanation to how we should live and how we should walk and Father, I pray that we would cling to your wisdom. What wonderful insight from James that we know we're going to walk through difficulty and trial. I pray, Father, you help us to embrace those things, that we would embrace our frailty and weakness so that we could see you be strong in us. May it be so among us, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.